Good morning, everyone. Our reading this morning is taken from the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. So we're reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. So it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Amen. Thank you, Morag. For those of you who came this morning expecting Amanda to be speaking, it's too late. I've warned the stewards to lock the doors. There's no escape at this stage. But as COVID has been running through uh, the church uh, and people have been falling uh, victim to it, not knowing when they'd be clear and when they'd be getting a negative test, we've had to move some of the services and some of the speakers around and some of the topics around. And so that I'm a substitute for Amanda this morning, as Peter was for me last week. I think I told this story here one previous uh, Sunday, but it was stories told about a man was giving the all-age talk in a, in a church, and he used the word substitute. And the leader of the service sort of grabbed him by the cuff and said, explain what the word substitute means. The, the children won't know. So he had to think pretty hard on his feet, and he, he thought, well, you know, you've got a, a window, a, a pane of glass, and the, the pane gets broken, and you can't get a, a fresh pane, so you stick a piece of wood there. That wood is a substitute. After the service, the, uh, the, the deacon came to him and said, you know, you weren't the substitute. You were the real pane. So I trust this morning uh, the substitute is here and not the real pain. But Amanda has read this, or sorry, uh, Morag has read this section from Ephesians about the analogy between Christ as a bridegroom and his church being the bride. The Old Testament introduces the concept of this relationship between God and his people Israel being like a marriage. In Isaiah 54, we read, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife, deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young. We're probably aware of the story of Hosea, which the entire story is 
of how Hosea is instructed to deal with his wife and her unfaithfulness, and that being an analogy for God's relationship with us, despite, or with, with Israel, despite her unfaithfulness to him. And then when we come to the New Testament, Paul takes the analogy and then applies it to the relationship between Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he writes, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you as one to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He then further expounds this idea in the verses more I've read from Ephesians 5, where Paul sets out explicitly this analogy, this metaphor of Christ and the church with a marriage. I was, I was reading a book recently by a chap called Glenn Scrivener, and he writes, for Paul, the joining of a man and a woman in marriage points to something beyond it. The love story between Christ and his people, just as Jesus has loved us and joined himself to us, so husbands and wives are to be joined together as a picture of this divine romance. Marital love is a proclamation of the most profound union. So marriage is about relationship. It's about, it's about commitment. commitment. A husband and wife make vows of commitment to each other. And in the analogy between Christ and the church, commitment is required on both sides. So let's just spend a little bit of time looking at these verses and picking out Christ's commitment to us and our commitment to him. Paul does this by using five verbs to show that Christ, as our bridegroom, has done and is doing for us. He takes in the past, present, and looks to the future, a glorious future. It's such a complete picture that some scholars think it was part of an ancient hymn or a hymn that had just been produced in the early church. So the first verb that Paul uses is this one for loved. Verse, Verse 25, 25. It says, Christ loved the verb is in the past tense, which indicates that Christ has loved us throughout eternity. Even before the incarnation, even before he came to earth, when he took on human flesh. As part of the Godhead, Christ has always loved us and always will. A pastor in a previous church we attended put it this way, Jesus could never love me anymore, nor will he ever love me any less. What an incredible assurance and security this brings to the relationship. Christ's love for me is unconditional, constant, beyond measure. That is Christ's love for you if you know and follow him. How do we know? Well, that takes us to the second verb that Paul uses in this passage. Because Paul then said about Christ that he gave himself the second part of verse 25. He gave himself at the cross. As is still the practice in many parts of the world today, at the time Paul was writing, writing a, man, a man had to pay a dowry to secure his bride. For Jesus, it was the ultimate dowry that he paid for us to become his bride by giving his life on the cross. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life 
for one's friends. This was the supreme example of unconditional love and commitment that Christ has shown for us. We'll explore that a little bit later, more a little bit later on. Then Paul goes on to write that Christ is going to make, to make us, us holy. Sometimes some of the translations use the word to sanctify. The Bible teaches that sin has affected every aspect of human life. No matter how, no matter good, how we good, good we think we are, we're unable to reach God's perfect standards of righteousness. But having loved us so much that he was prepared to die for us, Christ's aim now is to transform our character and our conduct by the power of the indwelling spirit. That is setting us apart, sanctifying us for holy living. And to do this, we are, the next verb, cleansed. Verse 26, by washing, by washing with water, with water through the word. And there's an allusion here to the bridal bath, which took place before both Jewish and Greek weddings. The initial purification from sin, from and, sin guilt, and guilt, which we receive when we first repent and believe in Jesus, and our public testimony to that in baptism. And then through the word. And commentators uh, say this could either refer to the testimony of commitment to Christ that's given at baptism, or it might be as we read and study and apply his word and become more like him. We are cleansed, made more like him. Then Paul looks to the future and he says that we will be presented. Christ will present us to himself. A radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Holy and blameless. A bride will exert a lot of time, effort, money to look as good as possible on her wedding day. We will be perfect when we come to our marriage to Christ. As we look at the church on earth, it's a very mixed image. Flaws, imperfections, faults, weaknesses, poverty, lack of commitment. Because all of those things I see in myself. And the church is made up of people just like me. But that's not our future. Our future is glorious. One day, we will be presented as radiant, without stain or wrinkle, holy, that is inner purity, and blameless, external perfection. That's Christ's plan for me and for you and for us as a church. In Revelation 19, there's a little bit more spoken about this because we read there, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So let's just recap on, those, on Christ's commitment to us through those five, five verbs. verbs. He loved us. He gave himself for us. He is making us holy, cleansing us, and one day he will present us. Let's just... Take a moment as we thank Jesus for being our heavenly bridegroom, the security we have in that relationship. Thank him for his commitment to you and to me.
But marriage isn't just a legal contract. It's a covenant where the different parties promise to do something for each other. We're ex we've explored what Christ has already done for us in this marriage and the promises that are still to be fulfilled. We might ask the question, question well, are, we are we married to Christ or is that wedding and marriage still to take place in the future? Which is it? It makes a bit more sense when you think or understand the form that a marriage took in the Middle East at that particular time. There were three stages to the marriage. Stage one was betrothal and dowry. The prospective groom would leave his father's house and travel with his best man to the prospective bride's home. There, he would finalize arrangements with the bride's father, in particular, setting the purchase price, the dowry. As soon as the groom paid the dowry, the marriage technically became effective. They were legally husband and wife, though they wouldn't live together for some time. She was declared to be consecrated to the groom, set apart exclusively for him. And a new covenant was established between them, sealed by the drinking of a cup of wine, over which a, bet a betrothal benediction was pronounced. In the communion service, we use the words, this cup is the new covenant. Do you see where it was coming from when Jesus used it? The dowry has been paid, the ultimate cost of Christ giving his life for us on the cross. So we're betrothed to Christ. Stage two then followed. After the betrothal ceremony, the man would return to his father's home for roughly 12 months. During the time of separation, he'd prepare a room for his bride in his father's house, while the bride would prepare herself for the wedding. Now, although they didn't see each other during this time, nor did they, did they have a sexual relationship, they were legally and spiritually bound to each other. In fact, if either of them died during this time, the other was considered a widow or a widower. To break the betrothal agreement was the same as divorce. The reason why Joseph planned to divorce Mary when he found out she was pregnant. At the end of this betrothal period, the bridegroom, dressed in festal attire and accompanied by best man and friends, would make his way back to the bride's house. Though everyone had a rough idea of when that would happen, they didn't know the exact day or hour. And usually to add to the element of, of surprise and suspense, he would arrive around midnight. And then with great joy, the bride, veiled and accompanied by her maidens, who were carrying lamps, would come out to meet the groom. Now, I imagine it wasn't a rap, tap, tap, and two minutes later she arrived out. It would have been a little bit longer than that. But she would come out prepared and ready to go with her bridegroom. She needed to be ready to be able to leave with her maidens in attendance, which helps us understand better the parable of the five virgins who were found without oil in their lamps when the bridegroom came. There was then a brief ceremony involving the word take. The groom would take the bride from her home and family, thus the Hebrew expression to take a wife. And after the groom took the bride, the whole bridal party would make its way to the groom's father's house. There they would find the wedding guests gathered and dressed in special robes. So that was stage two. 
Let's just take a moment to reflect on how this fits into the story and the analogy that we've been looking at. Christ is the bridegroom, the husband of the people of God. We are his bride. He's paid the purchase price, the dowry with his own blood. He's sealed the betrothal with a cup of wine. He's preparing a place for us in his father's house, his father's mansion. But he is still to come to take us to the place he's preparing. And that's stage three. Then the marriage was celebrated with a wedding feast, a great celebration that could go on for a number of days, dancing, music, food, great rejoicing. And that's what Revelation is referring to, the wedding feast between Christ and his bride, sometimes called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So at this stage in our history, we are at the betrothal stage. We're believers. As believers, we're betrothed to Christ, who's preparing a place for us, and one day will come to take us to be with him for all eternity. But during this time, what is our commitment to Christ? We've seen his commitment to us. What's our commitment to him? Well, the first area is to be faithful, exclusive, forsaking all others. Unfaithfulness can be open and blatant, or it can be more subtle and subversive. And the latter is often much more dangerous and hard to recognize. In it, if we're involved in that kind of unfaithfulness, we keep up the outward appearances. We go to church, we sing the songs, we do good deeds, but our hearts are far away from God. They're an outward performance that we're going through. Our motivation is to impress people rather than a genuine love of God and Jesus. Or it may be that some of the charges that Christ brings against the churches in Revelation could be laid at our door, tolerating idolatry, permitting other things to take the rightful place of God in our lives and affections, leaving our first love, lukewarmness, sexual immorality. Can the charge of unfaithfulness be laid at my door or at the door of SBC? Are we remaining faithful in our commitment to Christ at this time? The second area of our commitment is to be ready or prepared. We've seen how the bride needed to prepare herself and be ready for when the bridegroom would come. We don't know when Jesus will return. He's promised promised that he will. will. But would you or I live our lives differently if we thought that it might be today? Because it could be. What are our priorities? What do we spend most of our time thinking about and doing? Is it in selfish pursuits or looking for ways to build up our spiritual capital? It doesn't necessarily mean spending time in church, praying, or reading the Bible, but rather that the underlying motivation for everything we do is to please the Lord. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We read in Colossians 3.17 or verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So we're to be faithful, we're to be ready and prepared. Thirdly, we're to obey. Verse 24, the church church submits to Christ. He's our ultimate authority. John's gospel, Jesus makes very clear what this involves. 
chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. In verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Really couldn't be much clearer. It's simple to understand, but so difficult to put into practice. This is part of our preparation during our waiting for the bridegroom, to learn what he asks us to do and then to do it. You've all been aware of the little bracelets, WWJD. What would Jesus do? It's a good principle to ask as we live our lives. Our guidance for our beliefs and behavior don't come, doesn't come from social media or the TV or whatever, or the practices of our surrounding culture. They come from the Bible. Again, can a charge of disobedience be leveled against you or I? And then the fourth area where we show our commitment to Christ is by respecting or showing reverence. We read about about that that that. in verse 21 and verse 33. For a marriage to develop, grow and last, it must move from an initial emotional love attraction phase to a much much deeper commitment through respect, appreciation, sacrificial giving. In a solid marriage, neither party takes the other one for granted. They support each other, encourage one another, seek for the other's best interests. They spend time together. They will even give up on their own interests at times to promote what the other partner wants. It's the same if we are betrothed or as we are betrothed to Christ. We aim to do what he says, not out of duty or dread of the consequences, but out of wanting to please him, out of our respect for him, out of our love for him, as we've experienced his love in our lives. A few years ago, I was talking with a young couple who were getting married. I asked them how their wedding plans were coming on. Fine, they replied, but we're not concentrating on our preparations for our wedding. We're concentrating on preparing for our marriage. Very, very profound difference that they were expressing. Is that our attitude? Maybe you're thinking, well, this sounds very much like I have to work to earn my salvation. My relationship with the bridegroom. Is that dependent on what I do? But we read that he is going to present us as blameless. It's nothing to do with us. What is it? Is it anything to do with us or is it nothing to do with us? In one sense, it's both and. Our salvation is totally a free gift of God to us through Jesus. God's grace to us. Then we're told in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. Both God and us are working together. Salvation is given to us, but we then have a responsibility to become lifelong disciples, concentrating on, as Revelation called it, the righteous acts, the good works of obedience, love, respect, intimacy. Having the the attitude that whatever we do, it's to please Christ in everything. So in conclusion, the marriage metaphor shows us, firstly, a powerful picture of the nature of Jesus' love for us. 
we are utterly secure and guaranteed of that love. Secondly, the fundamental issue of discipleship, that is simply following Jesus, is loyalty, faithfulness to him and his commands. Thirdly, sin is actually worse than we thought. It's adultery. It's profoundly relational and a betrayal. It's something to be aware of and avoid it. And fourthly, the call to faithfulness is the call to be ready. Christ will return for his church, maybe even today. Let's take to heart this beautiful metaphor of Christ as our bridegroom, we as a church being his bride, and bask in the intimate relationship it enables us to enjoy. Thank you, Dave.